When my wife Ange and I were first dating when we were in college, we got the opportunity to go on a day trip that the school was putting on to an amusement park called Cedar Point in Ohio. And if you've never heard of Cedar Point, it's basically like Six Flags, except all the rides are like 10 times better. It's a really cool, fun place. And we went there, and this was like our first real date. And by real date, I mean it didn't end in us just sitting in the cafeteria at school eating dinner together. And we, we loved to go on these roller coasters. We had a lot of fun. And I, I personally love roller coasters. But the problem for me is that I'm a little bit afraid of heights. So I don't like being up very high. But while we're moving on a roller coaster, I'm OK. But I just hate that climb at the beginning. That always freaks me out. So we're having a, a great time going on all the rides. And we're enjoying each other's company. And it was great until we went on this one ride, this ride called Val Raven. And as you can see, this ride uh, is pretty intense. And so it's one of those rides where you, you, know, you have the over-the-shoulder harness that goes over you and your legs are just kind of dangling there. So you can see where you're going. You can see like the ground the entire time you're on the ride. And it's one of the taller rides in the park. And so you go to the very top of it. And the whole time, I'm just gripping the harness with white knuckles, just uh, hoping, hoping I can get through this OK. And we get to the very top of that first drop. And as you can see, that's like a, a 90 degree angle. It's, a, it's a, a, a really sharp drop. It's like you're basically free falling. And so the, this roller coaster, it takes you up to the very top and then it takes you just enough so you can see like over the drop you're about to go down and then it stops you. It just stops you right there and it stops for maybe, I don't know, five seconds or maybe eight seconds or 12 seconds because it changes every single time. So you don't know how long you're just going to be sitting there, hanging there. And I started freaking out a little bit. And by a little bit, I mean I started yelling, I started screaming, saying things that I don't normally say. And the whole time, Angie's so sweet. She's sitting next to me and she's like, hey, it's okay. You know, we're going to get moving soon. Don't worry about it. We're going to, uh, it's going to start soon. But I just wasn't paying attention to anything that she said. I was just yelling and screaming the whole time because I was a little bit afraid. And I think Stories like this are the reason why we have the saying, don't let your emotions get the best of you. Because in that situation, I definitely let my emotions get the best of me. And now, when we talk about emotions, we have to acknowledge that emotions are really good and they're very helpful for us as we live our everyday lives. Emotions are the reason why we're able to, to do pretty much everything that we do the way we do it. It's the, <clears throat> emotions are the reason why we're able to avoid dangerous situations because we're afraid of getting hurt. Emotions are the reason why we're able to, to make tough decisions. They help us to do that. They help us to make decisions if, if I should move on to this new company with this exciting opportunity or if I should stay at my old company where I have relationships with the people around me and people that I care about there. And these, these emotions also help us to stay true and faithful to the people around us, to the people that we love, and it helps us to love them even more. Without emotions... We couldn't function like we do with each other and with the rest of the world around us. Without emotions, we would act way differently. And emotions are also good, and we know this as Christians. We know it as Christians because God himself has emotions. If you look throughout the entire Bible, you see that God has all sorts of emotions. 
God the Father in the Old Testament, he describes himself and, and he is described as a God who is slow to anger and abounding in steadfast, immovable love. And he delights in his people. He has joy and he is pleased with what he has made and sometimes even with the people that he has made as well. And Jesus, Jesus has a full range of human emotions because he's 100% human. Jesus uses humor in his teachings. Jesus gets surprised from time to time. Jesus cries, he gets angry, he has joy, and he loves and is compassionate about the people around him. And someone actually did a study on all the emotions used to describe Jesus. And they found that, that there were 39 different words that were used to describe Jesus' emotions throughout the scriptures. So Jesus has a full range of human emotions, and he can empathize with us. Emotions are a part of who we are because we're made in God's image, and it's a part of who God is. And now, emotions are good, we know that. But there's a problem that we have with emotions. And it goes back to that roller coaster story. The problem with us and our emotions is that we can sometimes do crazy and ridiculous things because of our emotions. That we don't always think clearly when we have all these emotions going on inside our heads. I mean, think about it. When was the last time that you got angry and you did or said something that you almost instantly regretted? Or when was the last time you got nervous or stressed out about a situation, maybe at work or a project you were working on, and you ended up making things a lot worse for yourself than if you didn't worry so much in the first place? Or when was the last time you were sad or upset about something and you just decided to disengage from the rest of the world and from the people around you, even though you know that that's probably not the answer to your problem? When was the last time that you were afraid on a roller coaster and embarrassed yourself in front of the girl that you were trying to impress. It wasn't too long ago for me. We let our emotions get the best of us. And what happens when they get the best of us is that our emotions end up controlling us. They end up owning us and, and we get overpowered and overwhelmed with our emotions and they drive our actions. And I think to, to deal with this problem, this problem that we have of, of these emotions kind of controlling us and having ownership over us, is that we actually take our emotions and we get our identity from those. That we form our identity from our emotions and from our feelings. And I think we can see this on a broad scale in our culture today. We have a culture that, that is very open about emotions. You could almost call it an emotional culture. And we talk more about our emotions and wellness than, than we have in the past. I think that, that this is partially a good thing. I think it's a good thing because it helps us to deal with and talk through the things that we're experiencing and feeling. And, and it's acceptable now to, to seek professional help for dealing with all this emotional baggage that we all carry with us. Because the truth is we all have some degree of emotional baggage. And... It's just part of being a broken person in a broken world with emotions that don't quite work right all the time. And the problem with that is that we end up deriving our identity from these emotions that are changing all the time and that are unpredictable and that we can't always trust. 
And we don't find our identity in, in who we are individually or even in God, who God calls us to be and says that we are. Instead, we find our identity in our anxieties, in our phobias, in our emotional baggage that we carry with us. We find our identity in what makes us feel good, what makes us happy. We're more likely to say, I feel, therefore I am, rather than I think, therefore I am. I feel, and that's why you should value me. I feel, and that's why I matter. I feel, and that's why you should accept my truth. I feel, and that's why you should let me be happy and do what I want and what I feel like doing and what brings me joy. And when this plays out, when people challenge us on our feelings and, and, and on our emotions, we tend to get a little bit defensive about it. And we tend to respond pretty harshly when we get challenged on them because our emotions aren't just a part of who we are, but our emotions are who we are. We're, and as we do this, what we're really after, what we're really trying to find is love, acceptance, and control. We're trying to find all those things in our emotions, but the problem is we never actually find them there. Instead, our emotions overwhelm us, they overpower us, and they control us. They own us, and instead of our emotions serving our desires and our purposes, we serve our emotions. And we do this when we fight with loved ones, with our spouses, with people that, that we care about because we feel like we're right and we're too proud to admit that we're wrong. And we're cold and harsh to the people around us because we're secretly envious of their success or their popularity. We chase down our desires and our passions and what we think are going to make us feel good, and we get tunnel vision to all the other ways that we might be hurting the people around us in our pursuit of whatever that is. And when we face tragedy, it overwhelms us. It overwhelms us to the point that, that sometimes we don't feel like we can see a light at the end of the tunnel. That sometimes we wonder, what is there really left to live for? And I don't know if you've ever been there yourself, but that's where the widow is when Jesus enters into her life in the reading for today. This woman, who had already lost her husband, was going to bury her one and only son, something that, that no mother should have to deal with. But she has to do it anyway. And she goes and she's walking in front of the stretcher that's, that's carrying her dead son. And, and the son probably died less than 24 hours ago because they didn't have anything to, to preserve the body with. So they had to bury their dead pretty quickly. And so it's a lot for her to handle, I'm sure. And walking in front of the stretcher, weeping, the whole town can see her grief on display. And now we can imagine how much this woman must be suffering. We can imagine that. And we've been to funerals. We know what it's like to lose people who are close to us and to try to deal with that. We know that that's difficult. But this woman's grief was amplified because of the culture at the time. Because at that time, if a woman didn't have her husband to, to care for her, to provide for her, then she would have to rely on her sons or her son-in-laws to do that for her. But if she had no one, then she would have to do a couple things. She would have to live off of begging and gleaning. 
She would have to beg in the streets and, and live off of other people's generosity and depend on that for her livelihood. And she would glean, which is this practice, this kind of welfare system uh, that's baked into the Israelite culture. She would go through, after the harvesters had gone through the grain fields, after they had gathered the grain, and the widows and the poor would go through, and they would pick up whatever grain that was left over that had fallen into the dirt that the harvesters didn't pick up. So it's difficult, and it's a desperate life for this woman. And in fact, it's, it's such a difficult thing to deal with that in the Old Testament, Naomi, who had lost her husband and her two sons, she doesn't only change in her social standing and her status, but she also changes her identity. She changes her name from Naomi, which means pleasant, to Mara, which means bitter. Naomi's whole identity was changed by this, this sorrow, this despair, and this tragedy that happened to her, and that overwhelmed her. And now this widow that we see in our story for today, she's experiencing that same grief, walking to bury her son with no one left at home for her to go back to. And she has this, this cloud of despair over her head, following her out. So we see these two crowds. We see this crowd surrounding Jesus, his disciples, and the crowds that were following them. And, and they're excited. They're joyous. They're just buzzing about what Jesus is going to do next. And then we have this other crowd passing them as they exit the city. This crowd surrounding this widow, this weeping widow who went out to, to bury her son and is in the midst of grief and tragedy. And you wouldn't think that, that when these two groups would pass by each other, you wouldn't think there would be much interaction there. You don't stop a funeral procession that's going on. But that's what Jesus does. We read that Jesus saw the widow, that he saw her. And, and we see lots of people here in Houston. We see people when we walk into HEB, or we see people when we go through Memorial Park, or when we sit in traffic on I-10. We see people all the time. But how often do we really notice people? How often do we notice people and we say to ourselves, I wonder what's going on in that person's life. I wonder what pain they're dealing with behind the scenes. Is there any way that, that I, can, I can serve them or love them as my neighbor? I know that I don't usually think that way. But that's exactly what Jesus does in this situation. Jesus doesn't only see this widow, but he notices her. And Luke says that he has compassion on her. And this, when we, when we look at this word compassion or to, to feel sorry for, um, when we dig into it a little bit more, we find out that, that really at its root, it's not just like a, a friendly love for someone or it's not just a, man, I feel bad for you or man, I, I'm so sorry. I wish there was something I could do. It's not this, this socially distanced empathy, but instead, this is a compassion that is, that is gut-wrenching. A compassion where, where you wish that, that you could tear out your heart if it would make this person feel better, if it would take them out of their situation. That when you see them in pain and suffering, it hurts your insides. That's the kind of compassion that Jesus is having for this woman. Jesus is able to empathize with her situation. And then he enters into her pain. 
Jesus walks up to this woman. He enters into this cloud of despair that's hovering over her head. And he says to her, do not weep. Don't cry. Don't cry. And what he's doing when he says that is he is claiming authority over her grief. Jesus is claiming authority over the situation. Don't cry. Do not weep. Jesus is saying that something bigger than your pain and your suffering is here. Just watch this. And he walks up to the stretcher. He puts his hand on the stretcher carrying the dead man. And he doesn't take the time to worry about what kind of social norms he's breaking right here. He doesn't take the time to worry about stopping the funeral procession. He doesn't worry that touching that stretcher is going to make him culturally unclean in Jewish eyes. He touches that stretcher because he's claiming authority not only over the emotions that are driving and overwhelming this poor woman, but he's claiming his authority over death itself. And Jesus reverses death. He says to this young man, arise. And the man sits up and he starts speaking. And this is my favorite part. Jesus gives the man back to his mother. That's what Luke says. Jesus gives the man back to his mother. And in doing that, Jesus is giving this woman back her old identity. She is now a mother again. And she has the identity. She has her beloved son back. She has someone that's going to care for her, that's going to provide for her. But Jesus gives her a new identity too. Jesus gives her an identity of someone that Jesus has brought to himself, where someone where Jesus has entered this person's life and changed it forever. That's what Jesus does here. He gives this woman a new identity. And Jesus is bigger than her problems. He reveals that he is bigger than her problems and claims her as his own by saying, don't weep. Don't weep because I'm here for you. And friends... That's exactly what Jesus says to you, too. Jesus says, don't weep, don't cry, because I have claimed victory over your brokenness, over your emotions, your suffering, your pain, and your death, and everything else in this world that tries to own you. I've claimed victory and authority over all of these things. So don't cry, don't worry, don't get angry, don't despair, don't feel hopeless. Because something bigger is here, and that's me. God has visited his people, and you are his child. And nothing can get in between you and my love. And Jesus makes it clear that nothing is going to get in between you and his love on the cross. When he goes to the cross, when he rips his heart out for you to prove that not even death can stop him from loving you. And you better believe, if death can't stop Jesus from loving you, then there is nothing in this world, including the emotional baggage that you bring to the table, that is going to stop Jesus from making sure that he loves you and that you know that. So Jesus frees you. He frees you from finding your identity in your emotions and in all the other things in this world. And he frees you to be able to use these emotions for what God's intention is in the first place. To use these gifts of emotions as a way to love the people around you. 
And there's two ways you can do that. You can use your emotions for God's purposes for you. First of all, by taking a look at yourself and being a good steward of the gifts that God has given you. To take a look inside, to be reflective, because the fact is that, that God has given you body, to uphold and to honor, right? We, we are supposed to honor our bodies like they are a temple. And that includes our minds as well. That includes other aspects of our lives. God calls us to be good stewards over. And one way we can do that is by taking a look inside and dealing with some of the baggage that we carry, dealing with some of the emotions that are going on in here. Things that, that might prevent you from, from doing the best you can at your job from being the best friend, the best parent that you can be, the best spouse that you can be. You have to ask yourself the question, is there something going on in here? Is there some conflict going on in here that is kind of overflowing into this relationship? Am I getting burnt out at work? Am I I overworking myself? Am I putting too much stress, too much worry into my life? Because God doesn't intend you to live that way. And the more we can, we can kind of remove some of these barriers that are inside of us, these conflicts, these emotions that we have that are getting in the way of doing what God calls us to do, the more God can use us for his purposes. And now you're not going to be able to take care of everything, every problem in your life. You're not going to be able to remove every obstacle. But when we take a look at God's word, when we allow that to inform us and when we walk in step with the spirit and allow him to work in our lives, then we can be a little bit closer to living the life that God intends for us. And the second way you can use your emotions for God's purposes is to love the people around you. And with emotions, we have a great opportunity to do that because emotions allow us to relate to the people around us. They allow us to have a connection to the people in our lives so that we can relate to them. We can empathize with them. We can walk alongside people in their pain and in their suffering because we got some pain and suffering inside too. And we can speak Jesus' love and his promises into their life. That's another thing that God intended emotions to be used for, to have an emotional connection and relationship with the people around us and to create space for the love of Jesus to enter into that relationship. As I finish up here, I wanted to leave you with with this study, this study from the University of California that I found. And these researchers at the university got together, and they wanted to study emotions. And so they got a bunch of participants together, and they took a bunch of GIFs, like 2,000 GIFs, which are these little short videos, and they played them for these participants. And... Then they record their emotions. They ask them to to kind of tell them how they were feeling. And what they found is this, that there are 27 categories of emotions. There is joy. There's things like fear, awe, boredom, happiness, anger, all sorts of different emotions. And what they found is that you don't just feel one emotion at a time. You're not just happy, and then you're angry, and then you're sad. But instead, we experience a bunch of different emotions all at the same time. There are endless combinations of emotions. So you can feel like a little bit of awe, some excitement, and some fear all at the same time. Or you can feel some confusion, some joy, and some surprise. Instead of being separate emotions, really what it's like is it's like a color wheel. A color wheel, you have like yellow that kind of transitions into orange, then into red. 
It's the same way emotions work, that there are endless combinations to them, and they all kind of blend and bleed into each other. The point of me telling you this is that God has given us these complex emotions as a gift. He's given us these emotions as a gift that we can use to serve God by understanding ourselves and by loving the people around us. And that's what we're going to dig into in the rest of this sermon series. We're going to take a look at our emotions through the lens of Jesus, through what he has done on the cross, through the forgiveness of sins that he offers us. And we're going to look at that, and and we're going to look at our emotions and how we can use them now to love the people around us and to be who God has made us and called us to be. And God has made us to be his emotional creatures made in his image who can connect with one another. And he has called us through the work of Jesus, through Jesus freeing us from our identity that is tied to our emotions or anything else in this world. He has called us to live in that freedom, to love others and to be his children, receiving whatever it is that he has to give us, forgiveness, promises of new life, a new life with Jesus, in eternity. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for for giving us all the gifts that you give us each and every day. We thank you especially for for making us with all these emotions. And we pray that, that we would be able to view these emotions as a gift, like they're meant to be, that we'd be able to use them to love the people around us, to connect with those around us, and to speak the love of Jesus into those relationships. And we pray that you would help us to do that, that you would inform us through your word, and that you would guide us by the Holy Spirit to be reflective and to understand ourselves and to love the people around us. We pray this, Father, in your name. Amen.